Okay, I am so excited for our new series that we're going to be starting at the first of the year called Not One Pinstroke. How many of you just love hearing stupid rules? Okay, I love hearing stupid rules. We went as a staff yesterday, uh, we, we had some fun, and we went to an escape room. And if you've never done an escape room, they are a ton of fun. But we're sitting there in this orientation, and the guy gives us all the different uh, pieces of information that we need to know. And then he says, I have some stupid rules that you need to follow. Like stupid rule number one, he said, if the carpet is glued down, there's not a clue under the carpet, don't be yanking up the carpet. I'm thinking, why does he need to say that? And he said, now, you might be asking, why am I telling you not to remove the carpet? Because we had somebody started peeling up the carpet that was glued on the ground. I'm thinking, that's stupid. Then he went on and gave us another rule that was even more ignorant than that. He said, do not stick anything in the outlets. There are no clues in the electrical sockets. (laughs) Now, if you go to an escape room, you start sticking your keys into an outlet, I'm going to let you do that, okay? Because that is called natural selection. And if you think there's a... A key in there, I'm going to let you do that. That's not very nice to say, is it? They didn't hire me to be nice, I guess. Stupid rules. Everybody doesn't really like rules, but we have rules for a reason. And one of the parts of Scripture that we often overlook more than anything else is in the Old Testament, and it's God's law. We start reading through the book of Exodus and we say, man, the Exodus is awesome. You know, God parts the Red Sea. We like that. Then we start getting to the law and we say, well, I don't really understand it. And then there are some things in there that make us uncomfortable. And so we start to gloss over those things. There's a lot of the nature and the content in the Old Testament that just, uh, it's hard. But here's what I want us to see that the Old Testament law teaches us the nature of God, but it also teaches us the nature of mankind. The Old Testament has given us an example and illustrations in which we should live by and how we shouldn't live. Now, this is challenging for us because a lot of the things that God calls us to come in contradiction to our human nature, to our own desires. But what we see is, is that God lays out a pathway that when we apply these things to our life, we're living in a way in which we were created to live. We're operating in a way in which we should operate. You know, your phone is probably in your pocket right now. One of the most frustrating things in the world is when your phone doesn't work right. You say, I paid thousands of dollars for this stupid thing. I paid $250 a month and now it doesn't even work. And you want to take a hammer to it, right? Well, sometimes in life, we get that same frustration where if we could take the proverbial hammer to life, we would smash it. Why? Because life isn't working the way we wished it would. And what we see from the Old Testament law is that God gives us a, a, a template in which when we apply it to our life, it helps the stars to start to align. Why? Because we are working in the way that which God created us. This is why Jesus told us in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes on the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So in this series, we're going to discover from the Old Testament portion how God has called us to live in a community of faith. If there's one thing that 2020 taught us is that church is vital to our spiritual health. And church should not be a consumer experience. Meaning sitting at home watching a live feed is great when that's the only option we have or if we're gone or if there are situations that are preventing us from gathering together. But when we are able and when we can gather together, we understand that it is better for us to be surrounded by a community of believers who can help sharpen us, who can help encourage us, and help propel us to who God has created us to be. So church isn't about doing the right thing necessarily. It's about experiencing God and community, and that's what we're going to see from the law, because God is talking to a community of believers, and he's encouraging them and he's pressing them on. And today we're going to look at the most well-known part of the Old Testament law, and that is the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter number 20. And the title of this message is For the Love of God and for the Love of Man. And the big idea is being a Christian means living in the right relations to God and to man. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter number 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse number 1. Exodus 20, starting in verse number one, it says this, and God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not make a name, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the sea and all that is in them and the rest of the seventh day and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So God just gave us these 10 commandments. He gave it to the people of Israel. And here's what the Bible goes on to say. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, this is a long passage of scripture. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. What is the context of what's going on? Because the context really frames what God is trying to accomplish when he gives us the Ten Commandments. 
Well, we know in the beginning, God created humanity and very quickly humanity rejected God and God promised that someday a savior would come to pay for the debt of sin that humanity owed. A couple hundred years later, God promised a man by the name of Abraham that a savior would come from his lineage, that he would give birth to a son and his son would become a great nation. And out of this nation of people would come the savior. Before that was to happen, the nation would fall into slavery for 400 years, but God promised to remember them and rescue them. This slavery was to teach us what sin does to us. It it puts us in chains and it puts us in bondage and we need someone to rescue us out of there. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. If you read the book of Exodus, the, the Hebrew people fall into slavery in Egypt and God sends a man by the name of Moses to lead them out. He, he gives Moses signs. There's plagues that befall the Egyptians. And finally, Pharaoh releases the people and they go out into and part the Red Sea and cross out into the desert. And they go to Mount Horeb, which we're now picking up. So if you want to read all this, you start in Exodus and read backwards. But here in Exodus 20, God has now descended upon the mountain and he's starting to speak directly to the people in chapter 20. Verse one is very important. It says, it starts out with very powerful words. It says, God spoke all these words. To understand the Ten Commandments, you have to understand that God is the one that is speaking to the people. He is speaking his word. He's trying to teach the people how he expects them to live so that they will not fall back into slavery. That's one of the reasons why we study and we trust the word of God, because we believe this is God speaking to us for our encouragement, for our correction, for our reproof. Now, God was speaking. It was very powerful. And we have to look at the nuances of what God says. He says, I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of slavery. Notice the personal pronouns that God is using. God is not saying he is some God. He's not some God that is distant or disconnected from his people. God wanted the people to know that he was their God. There was a personal longing from the Lord for his children. He wants the children to know that I am with you and I'm here among you and I don't want you to feel like you're alone, but I have some things that I need to to, to tell you. So when we read through the Ten Commandments, it's not about a a judge sitting there and issuing law. Rather, it's about a father who calls a family meeting with his children. How many of you ever had those family meetings and they're not fun, right? How many of you get to have family meetings on Sunday morning after church with your kids? Like, you little heathens were running around and you're getting grounded forever. Those family meetings aren't always fun but they're required for the function of the family. And what God is doing is he's having a a family meeting with the, the Israelites and he's saying, look, I saved you from slavery. I rescued you because you initially rejected me. So I righted your wrong, but here's what I'm telling you you need to do. There are some parameters so that you do not fall back into slavery. And God is still saying the same thing to us. We have to understand through Jesus's life that he rescues us from slavery to sin. He is the one who is sacrificed for the punishment that we owe so that we, by faith in him, could spend eternity with God in heaven. 
So we have been rescued by God, but God doesn't want us to fall back into slavery. Rather, he wants to have a relationship with us where he is our heavenly father and we are his children. And that's what Exodus 20 is teaching us. That's what the Ten Commandments are teaching us. He's giving us parameters for this relationship to him, but he's also giving us parameters for our relationships to one another. God is basically saying the same thing to the Israelites and to us. I rescued you, I'm giving you a free gift, and I want a relationship with you. But if you want a relationship with me, there are some standards. And that what that teaches us, church, is that we can't live any way that we want to. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as individuals of the church, God has called us to a standard to live by. He's calling us to have a right relationship with him, a right relationship in how we worship him, and he's calling us to have right relationships with one another. And we're not going to dive deep into every single one of these commandments because we don't have time for that, but rather we're going to look at a 30,000-foot view, and we're going to see how God has called us to live in three areas. The first is this. God is calling us to have right relationship with Him. We cannot relate to God just any way we want. God has some standards that He expects for us to live by and how we regard Him and how we interact with Him. And every close relationship requires standards. And the more intimate the relationship, the higher the standards. I won't have friends for very long if I'm constantly jerks to them. You don't want to hang out with a jerk. I don't want to hang out with a jerk. So our our basic standard for our friends is they're not going to be jerks. I'm not going to have friends very long if I call them up at 2 a.m. in the morning and say, I'm coming to your house and you're going to make me breakfast. Now, if you are willing to do that, just let me know afterwards because I will take you up on that. How many of you know, not to be crass or funny, but I won't have a wife very long if I'm hanging out with a bunch of other women all the time, right? Why? Because there's a standard in that relationship. And the more intimate the relationship, the higher the standard. The stronger the relationship, the higher the standard. Therefore, it makes sense that in our relationship with our Creator, the strongest, most intimate relationship of our life, there should be very high standards. Notice the very first commandment shows us that the relationship with God is exclusive. He says, you are not to have any other gods before me. God will not tolerate us having any other gods in our life. God demands to be the one and the only God in whom we give worship to. He is to be exclusive in our life. Now, we understand that an idol can be anything that we bend our knee to. And we understand that we can bend our knee to our job. We can bend our knee to our money. We can bend our knee to our hobbies. Anything becomes an idol when we look to it to fulfill us, to bring us comfort, to provide for us, and to bring us people or peace. When we put anything in front of God in those areas of our life, it becomes an idol to us. And God is saying, don't do that. Because when you want right relations with me, It needs to be exclusive. He goes even farther, though, because the second commandment shows us that we're not to even put our image upon God. In our relationship with him, not only is it exclusive, but we cannot superimpose our own image on who we think God is. He says, don't create any carved images. Don't say this is God. This is exactly what the Hebrew people end up doing. You might be familiar with the story. While God is speaking to Moses, immediately after the chapter we read, 
Moses is up there and he's up there for a while talking to God and the people come to his brother Aaron and they say, look, we don't know where, where Moses is. You know, you need, to, you need to create some gods for us. You need to make an image for us so we know who to bow down to. And, and Aaron takes the gold from them and he fashions a golden calf and they start to bend their knee to it. And what did Aaron say after he made the golden calf? He said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. What happened in that moment? He was not denying Yahweh. Rather, what he was doing is he's saying, I'm superimposing my image of who I think God is upon him. Now, how do we do that? We do that by starting to think wrongly about who God is. We take our ideas, we take our wants, and we start to superimpose them upon the God of the Bible. We start to put our image. We might not craft it out of gold like they did, but we definitely craft it out of our ideals, by our thoughts, by how we speak. And we superimpose it upon God. And everybody said, all woman. That's exactly what we just witnessed in our own country, in our own culture. We took our idea and we superimposed it upon God. We think, well, 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 I don't have any idols. I'm not bowing down to any golden calves. No, but we've created and we took God and we have brought him down to our level. We have superimposed our wants and our desires upon him and we've made him an idol. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping a figment of our imagination. I thought I'd get more amens for that. I tell you what, I'm going to talk to TC over here because I'm getting excited over here. Yeah. Third commandment tells us not to invoke the name of the Lord improperly. He says, don't take my name in vain. Now, when I was growing up, I was told, don't, don't say God's name as a cuss word. And that's true. You shouldn't do that. But you start looking into what this originally meant. It says, don't even carry his name without honor and respect. And when you call yourself a Christian... You're carrying the name of Christ upon you as a label. You're saying that you're reflecting him. So if you're driving through traffic and you wave to the person next to you with one finger and you have a little fish on the back of your car, you just took the name of the Lord in vain. Why? Because you say, I'm a Christian. I represent the king, but I'm acting a different way. And God said, that's not how you're going to relate to me. We do that to our own kids, don't we? When they, when they mess up, we say, you are, I've raised you better than this. Your name means something. And when you're carrying my name, I expect you to act a certain way. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, look, in your relation to me, if you're going to carry the name Christian, then you're going to act a certain way. And you're not going to do something that's going to disrespect the family name. So our relation to God matters. We're to carry his name with honor. So God gives us these first three commandments and he says, look, this is my standard if you're going to relate to me. But then God goes even farther. And the second thing we see is that God has a standard and right relations on how we are to worship him. The fourth commandment is about trusting God for the finished, perfect work that he did. He said, you're to take a Sabbath. I worked for six days in creation, and then I rested on the seventh, and I want you to do the same thing. You can work for six days, but on the seventh, I want you to take a Sabbath. I want you to rest. Now, we could spend a lot of time here, but we don't have time to do that, unfortunately. Here's the principle, though. You and I take a day where we stop from our work to worship 
because we know the work of God is already finished. If you want to, you want to see this explained out in scripture, I encourage you to go read Hebrews chapter four when you get home. But here's what we have to understand. When God worked for six days and then he didn't do anything on the seventh day, why did he stop? Was it because he was tired? Was it because he needed a break? Was it that he, 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 he was like, man, woo, I put in six long days. I need to sit here for the seventh day. What was it? Why did God rest on the seventh day? Well, what Hebrews four tells us is because the work was complete. God rested on the seventh day because he had nothing else he needed to do. He got it all done. Now, what does that mean for us? That means for us is that God has already laid out the plan of salvation. It's already ordained. It's already mapped out. So when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, the work of salvation was done in our life. All he's waiting for us to do is to bend our knee to him in faith and say, you are my God. And so what the Sabbath teaches us is that we don't worship to get God to do something. Rather, we worship because God has already done something. It's exactly what Charity talked about. She didn't know this is what I was going to preach on, but this is exactly what she said. We don't worship to try to get God to move upon our behalf. We worship because we know God has already moved on our behalf. It's a completely different mindset. If we worship God to get him to do something, God has become our genie. We're trying to, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to say the right chance so that God will do something on our behalf, but that's not what you see in scripture. In scripture, people worship because they knew who God was and they trusted him and they knew what he had already done. And they knew because he was always working that they didn't have to beg him to move on their behalf, that he was going to move. It's a completely different mindset of how we worship. So when we stand here and say, this is how I fight my battles, what we're saying is, God, I'm trusting you. One of the hardest things to do is to be still and trust God. And yet... That's exactly what he calls us to do. So we see that God has this standard in our right relations to him. He has a standard in how we worship. But third, what we see out of this is that God has standards for how we are to relate to society. The next sex commandments that we see are to be worked together on how we treat our neighbor. The first four commandments are how we honor God and how we worship him. The last six are how we have right relation with our neighbor. If we get the first four commandments right, the next six are easy. But if we miss the first four, it's nearly impossible to get the next six commandments right. So what we see is that this is all about the heart. The commandments are not behavior modification. Rather, these commandments are heart altercations. God is coming in and he's rewiring our heart. He's realigning our heart to be in right relationship with him which then allows us to be in right relationship to our neighbor. We see this in the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment tells us to honor our parents, to treat our parents well, to treat them with respect. See, the family is the first institution that God created. And as the first institution, we are to respect it. We are to honor it. Good parents are from the Lord. And we are to show reverence to our parents, even when they displease God. Why? Because it's about our hearts and it's about our, our practice to submitting to authority. It's about our practice to, to honor the authority that God has placed in our life. One of the things that we struggle with as a society, particularly as a Western society, is knowing how to honor and respect authority. Ask anybody who's in authority. Or anybody who has a position of authority, it looks like they have authority. Ask a law enforcement officer, and they'll tell you people are constantly disrespectful. Why? Because we want to throw off authority. But if we learn how to honor our parents, 
We learn how to show respect and honor in the first place that God put authority in our life. Then we can mimic that in other areas. The sixth commandment teaches us not to desecrate the image of God by murder. There are seven different Hebrew words for taking a human life that is found in Scripture. And this commandment is not speaking of self-defense. It's not speaking of executing justice on a criminal. It's not speaking of accidental homicide nor of war. What it is speaking against is premeditating, taking another human being's life. Murder is a sin because murder is violence to the image of God. We understand and we talk about often that every human life is created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 5, God told Noah, if a man takes another man's life, his own life is required of him. Why? Because I've created every life in my image. So when we murder and we commit murder, we are performing violence against the image of God. And if you look at society and you look throughout history, one of the weird things about humans is that we're always trying to create new ways in which to exterminate one another. Violence is filled in almost every aspect of our history. There's not really a period in human history that you look that violence hasn't been raging somewhere. We're always looking for a way to hurt and destroy one another. Why is that? Because we're broken. I'm never ceased to be, it never ceases to be ironic to me how the first commandment or the first sin that we see in Scripture is taking and eating the forbidden fruit. The second sin that we see in Scripture is murder. It's like that escalated quickly. How did that happen? Because we're constantly rebellious against God. The seventh commandment teaches us that Sexual immorality is a distortion of God's gift of intimacy. It says, don't commit adultery. Well, this passage has been universally looked at as a commandment not to engage in sexual immorality. When you look at the the nuances of what he's saying is he says, look, sex is a gift between a husband and wife, and I'm telling you, don't engage in that outside of that context. Sexual immorality is a perversion to the gift that God gave to the marriage union. Sex was designed to be a type and a shadow of the intimacy that God desired with humanity through an exclusive relationship. And so any form of sexual immorality distorts the image that God was trying to bring to the believer. The Eighth Commandment teaches us that stealing is robbing from God and it's not trusting in his provision. Have you ever stolen anything before? I did one time. I have, a, I have a record. I remember thinking about this. This is, this is not good. I needed to repent, but it's kind of funny looking back on it. And it shows just how much of a, a geek I was as a kid. I was in eighth grade, or not eighth grade. I was about eight, nine years old. And we had a candlelight communion. And I was holding this candle, not thinking about Jesus, thinking, man, this would be really awesome. I could use this to light my fireworks. And so they had a deacon at the back collecting all the candles. And I'm like, heck no, I can light my fireworks with this. And so I pocket all the communion candles and sneak out of the house or sneak out to the house. I got caught. So that's my big, that's my big breaking the law moment when I stole candles after a candlelight communion at church. It's still a sin. Stealing always invokes taking something that God did not give you. In that moment, I can make light of it. And as a child, I think Jesus has forgiven me of it. And it's kind of funny thinking of a little eight-year-old stealing communion candles. But what happened in that moment shows the problem for all of our hearts is that we are taking something that God has not given us. 
we understand that all good things come from heaven above, and God has given a pathway for us to acquire things, and that's called work. So when I see you have something and I take it, what I'm doing is I'm not just robbing you, but I'm robbing God's provision for my own life. I'm undoing his process in my life. That's why stealing is such a big deal, because we have to understand that everything belongs to the Lord. Psalms 24 tells us that. Psalms 115 tells us that. Literally everything we see around us belongs to God. So when we steal from one another, we're also stealing from him. And God says, don't do that. So it matters on how we handle the things that come our way. The ninth commandment teaches us that we are to watch how we speak to one another. We are to speak the language of God. It tells us the ninth commandment says you should not lie. Now we may look at lying as a, a small sin, but that's not always the case. When we speak a lie, we are speaking by nature the language of Satan. It's crazy, isn't it? Jesus calls Satan the father of lies in John eight forty four. Jesus said that lying was Satan's native language. So when we bear false witness, when we lie, when we speak ill of someone else, we're not communicating in the language of God. And God is incapable of lying. In him, there is only truth. And so we're called to carry the truth, no matter how difficult it is or how uncomfortable the truth makes us, because within truth, there is freedom. So it matters how we answer on our tax returns. It matters how we answer when we make mistakes and we're called into the boss's office. It matters when we're asked about faith. We are not to lie in these areas that oftentimes we just turn and look the other way. Now, it should be noted that we're not also to use truth as a weapon. How many of you ever have used that? Like, oh, I'm mad at charity, so I'm going to go speak some truth to her. You know what I mean? Like, you didn't clean the house, and you didn't do this. And then she starts giving me some truth, and it, you're like, well, I just walked to that. You know, they walk up, they bring the baby. You're like, hey, there's a baby. I mean, what do you, what do you say with the, the truth can sometimes be difficult to manage. We have to separate a few things, though. We have to separate our opinions. From truth, a lot of things we say, well, I'm speaking the truth. We're just parroting our own opinions. And the other thing is, is sometimes we don't always need to give the truth when it's not required. We need to be careful. What does that mean? Well, just because someone might be doing something wrong doesn't make us the moral police where we have to run up to them. Let's pretend I see Brother Loki and I say, man, I just don't know about Brother Loki. You know, he's, he's getting a little bit into the weeds. Am I always required every time he does something that looks questionable, go up to him and say, boy, you don't do that anymore. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm doing a poor job articulating this. Let me start over. Just because you know something doesn't mean you need to use it as a weapon to beat someone else over the head with it. And that's what we can be. We, we, Jesus came full of truth and grace. So we never compromise for truth. We never withhold truth. But how we present truth matters. And that's what I'm trying to get across in this moment. So how you communicate to someone matters particularly in a cultural context where there's a lot of anger, how you communicate truth matters. And you can take that truth as a club to start wailing on someone else. And you might be 
true, but you're still wrong because you haven't presented the truth in the proper manner. That's why scripture says to, to season our words with grace. Our words carry weight. So lying is terrible. Using the truth as a club is just as terrible. That's what the Pharisees were getting in trouble for. They were picking the bits and pieces out of Scripture that they really liked, and they were using it as a club, whacking other people over the head with them. And what Jesus says, you're now creating the traditions of man. Jesus never compromised the truth. And all these commandments, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I'm telling you, don't even get angry with one another and hate your brother in your heart. You've heard us say, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even lust after a woman because now you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So it's not about bringing the truth down. It's about speaking the truth in a way that is covered with grace and that you're presenting the full counsel of the word of God and not our cherry-picked truth from time to time. The 10th and final commandment shows that all this is a matter of the heart. The commandment about coveting is really showing us that None of the other nine commandments can be fulfilled until God has our own heart. He says, don't be looking at things and wanting to covet them and take them. That's not okay. And what Jesus does with the ten, or excuse me, what God does with the 10th commandment, it shows that everything comes back to the heart. If I'm looking at something, I'm desiring it. It comes from a place of the heart, and the heart needs to be fixed. I want to close with this. The worship team wants to come back. In these Ten Commandments, we see that God is calling us as his children to a higher standard, a higher standard in relation to him, higher standard in how we worship him, and then a standard of right relationship to one another in society. God made it clear to the people at the base of the mountain that day. Remember the context of this. God is speaking to them from a cloud that's descended upon this mountain. But the passage says something very interesting happened. When God laid all these commandments out before the people, it says that they were afraid to draw near to God and that they wouldn't draw near to God. If you read on in Scripture, Moses attempts to get them to reconsider, but they're too afraid. And they just want Moses to go speak to God for them on their behalf. And this is vital to catch because what the people realize this day is that they needed a mediator. They needed someone to go to God for them. They knew that they weren't living up to these 10 commandments. I mean, God had just said, don't have idols. Well, some of them would have idols. God says, don't, don't love or put any other gods before me. And they knew that God wasn't the center of their life. God said, don't, don't, don't commit adultery. And some of them had mistresses. He said, don't steal. But some of them were thieves. He said, don't commit murder, but some of them hated and had murdered in the past. And now here they are, and they're hearing all these commandments, and they're afraid to draw near to God. And they wanted Moses to go to God for them. And the truth is this, is that none of us live up to these commandments on our own. I mean, I made light of the joke of stealing the candles. Still wrong. And of all the things that I could go through and tell you about my own life where I have sinned and done wrong, there's a reason why I told you that one. Why? Because it's funny. I didn't go through and tell you all the times that I really lied and it wounded and caused chaos. I didn't tell you about all the times that I coveted something else or that God wasn't the center of my life or I didn't trust in his perfected work. I, I didn't go give you all the skeletons out of my closet. Why? 
because it's embarrassing. If we went around the room today, none of us would be eager to start sharing our deepest, darkest secrets. Why? Because it's embarrassing. We know we haven't lived up to the standard. We need a mediator. What is this truth is pointing to in this moment is how we need someone to go to God for us to right our wrongs and to bring us in relationship with him. And that person is Jesus Christ. This passage points to Jesus. I needed him to make a way to fix my heart. I needed him to make a way to bring me close to God because I couldn't live up to the commandments. But here's the amazing thing that happens. When we go and we say, God, I need you to be my mediator, and we bend our need to him in faith and surrender, the Holy Spirit starts to flood our life. And the Bible says that we're made into a new creation. God starts to do a work on our hearts where we don't have to live to the old fleshly desires and the old nature, but we can be reformed and conformed into the image of Christ where we can have right relation with God and with one another. If you would, please stand with me this morning. And as you're standing, if you would, just bow your head. I want to talk to you for a moment. Today, if there was ever a time, this this message is very strategic at the beginning of the year. If there was ever a time that we need to really look at our own lives, it's definitely in this current atmosphere of culture. I had no idea when I prepared this message months ago that the events of this week were going to unfold. All the events of this week were going to unfold. But what the world needs is it needs a church that's living in a faith community where we do have this right relationship with God, but we also have right relationships with one another. The world needs to see hope. It needs to see that we've had a mediator change our life and that that mediator can change their life. And so as I, was, as I prepare any message, I always ask myself, what is the response at the end of this message? Well, it's the exact opposite of what the Hebrew people did in this moment. Instead of running from God, we need to draw to God. Because as we draw to God, and we allow him to change our heart and our nature, it allows us to walk in this world and it allows us to change how we interact with others. This is a message that is not lived in the church. Rather, this is a message that's lived in our homes. Will we find those times to draw near to God? Will we make sure he's the center of our heart? Will we make sure that we're worshiping him the right way? Will we are living right way with one another? And so my challenge to you is, I'm about to pray over you this morning, that you would examine your own heart, and that you would dedicate yourself to the Lord in this moment saying, God, I'm going to walk out of these doors today, and I'm going to allow you to conform your spirit into upon me so that I become into your image. Then we can live in right relationship to God and right relationship to one another.